Thanks for letting me get through that prayer without clapping. That was, that was very, yeah. I like this. This is like, you guys are alive today. Something's happening. That's good. That's not always the case. Sometimes we get up here and you're like, so I don't know. Something's good today. I don't know. The coffee's a little extra strong or something. Um, okay, so expectations often determine our perspective on something. The expectations that we bring often determine our perspective. You learn this quickly in marriage, right? Because as a spouse, I could be like, hey, that situation went great. And my wife was like, mm-mm, no, it didn't. I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was supposed to be different. Um, you might know what I'm talking about. We're not going to get into that today. That's a different, that's a different thing. I can't solve your problems today. Um, but any, anything, like any time you try something new, especially, I mean, our expectations that we bring to it definitely determine our perspective, right? So you go to see a movie and your friend was like, oh, this movie is awesome. You should go check it out. And you go and you're like, that wasn't that good. You kind of walk away disappointed. You expected it to be amazing and maybe it was mediocre and it felt like, Pfft. And so same thing, like if you try new food or something that was really hyped up or whatever, uh, if you come in and you're like, I don't even know what this is. And then it like ends up being like mildly okay. You're like, oh, I kind of liked that. Um, one of the, so, so we kind of bring expectations in that way. We bring expectations into relationships, but also we pick up expectations from what we learn and observe to be like normal. And a funny story I have about this is um, growing up, you know, we would always go visit my great grandma for Christmas. And it was just kind of like one of our Christmas things we would do with our family. And my great grandma lived to be 99, like in seven months. So she was like very close to hitting hundred, which is mind boggling. I mean, that's like crazy. It's a really long time to live. And she felt that because every year at Christmas, she was like, well, this is probably my last Christmas with you guys. Probably from the moment she was like at least 90, maybe earlier, she was like ready to go meet Jesus. And so she would say that every year. And so it was something that most of us, we would kind of laugh and, you know, we kind of know social expectations and it's like, ha ha ha, yeah, we don't really talk about death, grandma. Um, you know, we're not, yes, uh, yeah, we'll probably see you next year. And, um, my, but my younger brother, Joel, picked up on this when he was, uh, you know, between six or eight or something like that. He picked up on it. And so uh, at one point, at one Christmas, we were kind of in a circle just praying together and, um, and sort of popcorn prayer around the room. And Joel pipes up and prays and he goes, Jesus, thank you that we get to have one last Christmas with grandma and acting like her death is like imminent. Like she's gonna, we're going to leave and she's going to keel over and that's going to be it. And so the rest of us, you know, I, we're all kind of holding hands in a circle. And so I kind of open my eyes. I know, no, no, you know, I kind of open my eyes and look around and people are, uh, some people are kind of smiling and giggling a little bit or trying not to, you know, because we're praying and you're not supposed to laugh when you pray and, you know, and stuff. So we're lo I'm looking around and so most people are like that, but my great grandma's there just like, it's like, yes, Lord, thank you for this last Christmas. And then we had, you know, we ultimately we had like 10 more. Um, but, uh, but so for us, you know, we kind of had a certain expectation and Joel kind of picked up this different one that when we come to Christmas, we thank Jesus that this is our last Christmas with great grandma. And so for him, it just made sense. It's just like, this is just what we do. This is what we thank Jesus for every Christmas. And, um, 
Uh, it's important to, to think about our expectations, I think, because they determine so much about our perspective and how, how we live, how we act. Um, and ultimately, I think it's a good question to ask this morning as we, as we dive into a passage, is what are the expectations that we bring when it comes to following Jesus? What are the expectations that we bring and what it looks like to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? Like if you were going to boil it down, and I want you to think about this, like actually think about this. In your mind, come up with some, some words, some descriptive words, what it would look like if you were going to boil it down to its purest form. What does it look like to live as Christian? And now obviously there's, there's the whole kind of bedrock thing of like you put your faith in Jesus, you trust him for salvation, right? So, but I'm talking about the expression of it. How do we actually live that out? If you were going to boil it down into the simplest way, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what does your li life look like as a Christ follower? What is your life about? How do you live that out? What do you, how do you express that? How would you boil that down? What would that look like? What would you say? What does a Christian do? Just, so just be thinking about that as we read through this passage. So we're jumping in, uh, Acts chapter 5. We're coming right off the heels of Ananias and Sapphira, which is a, a pretty wild story. And uh, Chad did a great job last week. I feel like we say that every week. Like every, every pastor is just like, uh, so we just like listening to one another. And so every week we're just like, oh, the last guy did such a good job with that last part. Maybe I need to stop doing that. I probably won't. Um, <clears throat> chapter 5, we're continuing on. We're going to jump in in verse 12. And so it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico, which is part of the kind of temple compound. There's this large temple area. Um, and so they were, they were spending time there. None of the rest, like non-believers, uh, people who weren't Christians, none of them dared join, uh, join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is like amazing stuff is happening. Um, and as we read a passage like this, this is one of those things like we see what's happening, but for probably many of us, this is way outside of our regular experience. And so I think the first thing we have to do when we come to a passage like this is like, okay, how do I digest that? Like when I see something happening in the Bible and it doesn't, I don't necessarily see that or haven't experienced that, how do I deal with that? And I think there's generally kind of two maybe kind of extremes where people would fall on this. Um, you know, I think on one hand, people would say, you know, I don't, I haven't personally experienced this. And, um, and so therefore God doesn't do this stuff anymore. It's kind of that mentality. And sometimes it, it's, it's kind of baked in with a little bit and like charismatic people, like people who want to see this stuff happen are maybe a little crazy. I've had some bad experiences. So I just think that this is not something that we should even ask for. <laughs> we should probably avoid it almost. Um, and, and just kind of this blanket statement of God just doesn't do that stuff anymore. And then on the other side, there's a lot of people who say, 
This is like, we don't see this right now because we're not doing it right. If we were following Jesus correctly, we would see all of this stuff happening regularly. So that's kind of the two extremes of where people usually land on a passage like this. I would just say it's probably helpful for us to find somewhere a little more in the middle. Because what I think what the book of Acts is trying to help us see ultimately at the most basic thing that we're reading here is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to share the gospel and he can empower us in any way that he wants. God has freedom to do whatever he wants and he can empower us in any way that he wants. And so we see these amazing sign gifts and, you know, although it might be outside of our experience, you travel to different parts of the world, you talk to people who are doing ministry in other places of the world, this is happening all the time. And in fact, even here in our church, we've seen people be miraculously healed. Okay, so this is still happening. God is absolutely still in the business of healing people, even miraculously. And to be quite honest, we're all here because we have been healed of sicknesses, although it may not have been immediate. It may have been through modern medicine, you know, but we are all here because we've experienced different kinds of healing and different kinds of miracles that have brought us all here and sustained our life to today. But here's the other part of it is that um, and, and this is, I think, where some people get twisted, is that these sign gifts, these are not the primary evidence of a powerful move of God. They can be something that God does, absolutely. And they do. They're, they're, the reason they're called signs is because they point to a greater reality. They point to something else. Just like you, you're driving down the road and you see like Winona is this way. That sign is not Winona, but it says Winona is coming up, right? That's what all of these signs are. It's pointing to a greater reality. See, sign gifts are not the primary evidence of a powerful move of God. What is, is repentance. Repentance is the evidence of a powerful move of God. And that may happen through some miraculous signs like this, but it always happens through the, to the, the preaching of the word through people speaking the gospel. That's always what leads to a powerful move of God is prayer and speaking the gospel. And so um, ultimately, like kind of bottom line is that although this stuff is amazing, absolutely. And again, we've seen it here in our church. We see it all the time happening all over the world. And in fact, the Bible invites us to ask God to do these kind of things, to ask God to do stuff, to heal people, to set people free, to, to come and move in situations where we have absolutely no control, no ability to do anything. The Bible asks us in a childlike way or invites us to ask in a childlike way. But ultimately, the, the most amazing miracle that God does and the miracle that he's after doing in every single person's life is taking them from spiritual death to spiritually alive. That not just a gift of immediately, immediate physical healing, although that does happen and that's wonderful. That is a gift. It's a sign. It's ultimately, it's a sign of what God wants to do at an eternal level, <laughs> eternal life, eternal healing, right? And so we might experience physical healing and we may experience that as we're ministering to people and caring for people. And that's amazing. That stuff is temporary. It's a sign of the eternal life to come and the, the reality that Jesus is Lord. And see, this may, this may be the most basic point you've ever heard in a sermon ever. It might be the most like, duh, thing. But I think it's important to, to just 
show it, is that ultimately what the apostles are doing, they're literally just doing what they saw Jesus doing, and they're following his ministry instructions. They're just doing what was modeled for them by Jesus. That's what they're doing. And so following Jesus simply just means doing what he did. If you ever wondered what it means to follow Jesus, it means doing what he did. Now, in a contextual way to us, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But ultimately, what are they doing? What is the early church doing? They're speaking the gospel. They're caring for the sick and the vulnerable, the afflicted. And they're living holy lives. That's what they're doing. And I think if we saw these miracles happening, you know, it would kind of just blow our minds. It'd be like, whoa, this is crazy. And because we don't see it that often. For these guys, I wonder. I mean, I still think it's cool. I think it brings awe and wonder and stuff. But for the apostles, who where it says they're seeing this stuff regularly. Like Peter would walk past somebody and his shadow would pass over them and they would be healed. In some ways, this is what ministry has looked like for them the whole time. To them, this is their expectation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because starting out, before they were even followers of Jesus, they were seeing him do these kind of miraculous signs. They were seeing him heal the sick and cast out demons and care for people and to preach. And so they're just doing what Jesus has instructed them to do. When he sent out the 12 disciples, when he sent out 72 disciples, he said, go heal the sick, cast out demons, preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. So they're just doing the stuff that Jesus has told them to do already. Go make disciples, right? And it reminds me of what James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 1, uh, verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. I think that's, that's how James would answer that question of the expectation of what does it look like to follow Jesus? He boils it down to you care for vulnerable people and you live a holy life. That's what it looks like. That's how you express this faith. And I know religion, the word James uses, is kind of a no-no word. It's like, oh, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship and stuff. And, but really, what it's, it, all it means is this is just the expression of your faith. Your religion is how you live what you believe. And so this is what James is talking about. He's like, if you want to live what you believe in the most boiled down, pure way, get rid of all the excess fat and all the extra stuff. What does it look like? Care for orphans and widows, live a holy life. Now, there's a lot that goes into those two things, and we could, like, we could pick those apart, and what does that look like? And that's where a lot of the details would come in. But as far as just a simple statement of what it looks like to follow Jesus, I think that's a good one. And so maybe some of those things made it on your list when you first thought about what does it look like to be a Christian? I would guess probably, uh, probably at least at some level, those things made it on your list. But this is exactly what the early church was doing. Um, in the very next chapter, in chapter 6, the next thing we see happen is the church is growing a lot. They're trying to meet all these needs. So kind of the first big, you know, they've got the 12 apostles that are kind of leading things and administrating things. And they're trying to pray and preach the word and take care of everybody. And it's just getting too big. And so their first kind of big church hire is they bring on seven guys that are specifically there to care for orphans and widows in the distribution of food. So they had this like food pantry kind of ministry going on in the early church. 
And that was one of the ways that they were caring for people. And so that was their first big church hire, was bringing seven guys to administrate that ministry. And, um, and so, you know, I don't think in, in, in any case are we supposed to just straight up copy and paste. So like, this is what the early church is doing. This is exactly what our church should be doing. What we do is we look at what does God care about and how has he gifted us to step into that? So just to highlight a couple things, just real quickly, um, just to give us some handles as we think about like, okay, so this is what the early church is doing. How do we engage with this? What does it look like for us as a church? And then eventually, I hope that we can think about even for us as individuals, what does it look like to care for vulnerable people? Because James, when he talks about orphans and widows, these are like the most vulnerable people that, of that time. They had, they had no kind of fallback. There were no kind of social services. There, were no, there, there was nothing. So the, these orphans and these widows, they were, these were people who you were going to give probably for the rest of their life to support them. They're never going to be able to pay you back. You may never like get them back on their feet kind of thing. They might just be this constant giving need and not in a negative way. They're just the reality of their situation. They, they're just this consistent need. They would never be able to pay you back. So what does it look like um, to do that kind of stuff? So a couple things just to highlight that we're doing here at, at Pleasant Valley at kind of like a, you know, a more formal kind of things that we've set up as a church. Basically everything that Pastor Sammy has set up, everything in our missions thing is focused on this. So uh, one is we do, a, we have Matthew 25 project that's focused on uh, vulnerable people who are refugees. Um, we've done, obviously we have our family, Iris and the girls who are here from Honduras and we're taking care of them um, and doing our best to do that. Uh, we were, we've done things for uh, Afghan refugees, um, people in the, uh, who are fleeing Ukraine right now. So just stuff as God enables us to do. Uh, we've also partnered with, uh, probably many of you have been able to, to know or meet Sybil when she came to visit. And then Lucky and Sonnet also came to visit from Mozambique. Um, we're coming alongside them and their ministry. We've been able to do a lot of cool stuff with the, with the school they have set up there that's just serving this sweet, uh, really sweet um, need in their community. And they're doing it in a sweet way, um, teaching kids about Jesus. And then some of us have the privilege of also supporting some of those kids specifically through Sybil's Kids. And really, so all of our mission stuff, all of our missions trips, all that stuff, like these are all ways that we have as a church for us to kind of collectively do some of this stuff together. There's other things too. I mean, absolutely, you could consider like our kids ministry. We're serving that vulnerable uh, population, right? Kids are vulnerable in a unique way. Same thing with our with our uh, Thrive and our Rise Ministries and our Teen Ministries. We're serving those kids. In, in so all of this stuff, these opportunities where we kind of join together as a church to serve groups of people, this is a way for us as individuals to kind of get started, to try something out, to use our gifts in a collective way um, to serve and to love vulnerable people. But also on an individual level, I think there's unique ways that God has made us that we get to do that and express that in our lives. And it might be that he would put something, um, something else on your heart uh, by the end of our time together today that he might have you step into. But whatever it is, this is just an expectation that we should have when it comes to following Jesus that we're loving people, caring for vulnerable people. 
Uh, another, another one to think about is the, uh, all those in our church who are participating in like adoption and foster care ministries. I mean, that's literally serving orphans, right? It's, it's like directly out of the Bible. So these are, these are the kind of things that God has his children get involved in. Okay, so let's continue on. Uh, jumping back in verse 17, it says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him. And it's like, oh, this guy again. We remember him from Luke and from earlier in Acts 2. Um, they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the, to, uh, to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison uh, to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would, what would this come to? And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the others uh, or with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I just, this is super funny to me, by the way. To me, this feels like, in, in certain ways, it feels like the parent whose child just learned how to crawl. And it's like you put them down and you turn away for a second and then you look back and it's like, oh no, <laughs> where'd they go? And this is like, it just, it's so, it's, it's like kind of sad that these guys keep trying to do this stuff. And because they're, at first, like we, like we were reading in Luke, they, they thought like, oh, if we, if we just like are smarter than Jesus and ask him these really tricky questions, like that'll put an end to it. That didn't work. Like, okay, well, he's a lot smarter than us. So I guess we'll have to kill him and that will stop it. That didn't stop it. In fact, they got way bigger. So then they're like, okay, we're going to have to warn these guys, Peter and John, not to speak about Jesus anymore. But they had just healed this guy, so there wasn't really anything else they could do. And they're like, okay, well, that didn't work. Okay, let's get all 12 apostles and put them in prison and just like push pause on all of this. And then we can like figure out how to deal with this. And then they got out of prison <laughs> and they were just back at preaching the next day. And so everything these guys do, it just like doesn't work. <laughs> and it just makes me think, and I, the, all this whole time as we've been reading through Acts, I just keep thinking of like, what must they be remembering? Things, experiences they had with Jesus, things that Jesus said, that as they're having these experiences, they're like, oh yeah, Jesus totally said that. So as I read this, I just think of Jesus telling them, he's like, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Like these guys think they're in charge of that prison? Nope, they're not. They think their keys are the only ones that open those locks? They're not. They think their guards can keep you guys in? No, it doesn't work that way. Let's continue verses 27 through 40. It says, when they had brought them, so yeah, they bring them back. They had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching 
And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Like, hey, you keep telling everybody that we killed Jesus. I mean, we did, but we don't want you to tell people that. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Luke is using the same kind of language that he used with a lot of moments uh, with Jesus, especially in his trial, right? Uh, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, both when I see Jesus in his trial, now I see the apostles in this kind of trial situation, it bothers me. Think about how would this go if this was me? And maybe you could ask yourself the same question. What would my primary concern be in this situation? Probably my safety. Okay, maybe that's just me. You guys are, I know some of you are pretty holy, but I would probably be worried about my safety, um, my comfort, (laughs) just not wanting to be in trouble anymore. So they're like, don't preach anymore. It's like, okay, sorry. I guess I'll do it more sneakily next time. Or I don't know, maybe this is just too hard. And I think as good Americans, at least part of our argument would be like, hey, what about my rights? Freedom of speech, whatever, you know, whatever the stuff that we like to say. The apostles were just like, hey, you guys do what you're going to do, but we can't disobey God. We are witnesses of who Jesus is and what he did. And we're not going to stop talking about it. So you guys do whatever you want to do. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. These guys are used to like bringing people in and being like, hey, stop it. And they're like, okay, I'm sorry. But they keep bringing these guys in and they're like, stop it. And they're like, no. (laughs) So it's like, "Uh, okay, uh, what can we do? I guess, guess kill them. <laughs> and they couldn't do that. So <clears throat> they just beat them and send them away. But here's the thing. It just bothers me because I think often my life is my main concern. But what we see the disciples doing, and again, they're, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. These guys are people just like you and me. I'm sure their natural bent would be to feel the same as me and you, to be scared about their life to want to just be okay. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, God's kingdom is their primary concern and it must be ours as well. 
And so even though it makes me uncomfortable, I have to ask, why does this make me so uncomfortable? And I think it's because I love my life. <laughs> my life. It's about me. Like I spend most of my day thinking about me. And that tends to be my primary concern. And when I'm making decisions, right, my primary lens is like, how does this affect me? Do I like this? Does this keep me comfortable? And probably you experience the same thing as me. If you feel like God's asking you to do something, especially like speak to somebody about Jesus, your heart starts beating really hard. And you're like, I don't know how this is going to go. God, if I could be assured that I was going to walk out the other side of this and it was going to be great and they were going to like respond super well. And it's like, then maybe I would do it. And it's like every time we read anything about anybody speaking the gospel and then we realize like, oh shoot, that's supposed to apply to me. We're kind of like, can we just go back to the Ananias and Sapphira thing? Because that seemed hard, but now I'd almost rather have that happen to me than have to do this. I don't really want to speak about Jesus. If we're honest, we're afraid. And it's just, that's the reality. And I think it's important that we recognize that. But part of the reason is I just love my life too much. And the, the, the invitation of Jesus is to pick up a cross and follow him, right? So let's continue verses 41 through 42. Then they left the presence of the council. Remember, they'd just been beat. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's some boldness. Mm -hmm. And again, we give all the credit to God for that. But this is the thing that I couldn't get past. So in the beginning of the passage we read, there's all this pretty cool, miraculous, amazing, positive stuff that's happening. But the word rejoicing doesn't come up. Here at the end, we see them get beat and that's when we see them rejoicing makes me ask, why? <laughs> what is going on? And again, I think it boils down to expectations, right? They saw Jesus doing stuff where he was caring for people, healing people, and they were doing it. But the thing they saw Jesus do that they hadn't done yet was be beaten. And so not to minimize that it was absolutely painful what they went through, but I'm sure that as these guys were being beaten with tears in their eyes, both from pain, but they were looking at one another with tears in their eyes from pain, but also the realization of like, we're doing it. These are the same people that did this to Jesus and they're doing it to us. We are doing it. We're following in his footsteps. And I'm sure it was like this affirmation of like, I think we're like, really following Jesus. And to us, we go through suffering and we're like, what's happening? Help me, Lord, get me out of here. And these guys are like, we're doing it. We're doing the right stuff. It's happening. We're the real deal. And I just think that they were probably thinking about what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. 
So for the so for they uh, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. He's like you're in a, if you if you experience this kind of this kind of persecution, you're in good company. And ultimately, we can rejoice in our suffering because it connects us to the heart of Jesus. It's like who he was. It was what he was about. He carried a cross, right? And if I'm honest, I want to carry a bed. <laughs> I want to carry a nice, comfy, lazy boy chair. <laughs> and just carry it real short. <laughs> and then sit down again. <laughs> Jesus carried a cross. And he said, the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He said, this is the ministry that I do. To take the yoke off of the oppressed and to heal the sick. To see the blind receive their sight again. This is the kind of thing that I'm about. That's what, that's what Jesus' whole life was about. And this is, what, this is the expectations that the apostles had getting into ministry. You wonder why so many people walked away from Jesus? Because they saw what he was about. People were like, ooh, you know, feeding of the 5,000. They come and he gives them food and they're like, ooh, we like this guy, free food. I mean, who wouldn't like that guy? That's a good guy. Then he's like, hey, it's, that was just a sign to show you that I want to give you bread that will, you'll eat and you'll never be hungry again. In fact, I want to give you eternal life. And they're like, no, that's too hard. That's not what we're looking for. See, our expectations really matter. And these apostles, I mean, they, they, they write about it in their letters, right? There's two times in the New Testament that says, don't be surprised. One is Peter saying, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. And when you suffer for doing good in Christ's name, he, said, he says, entrust your soul to Jesus while continuing to do good. That's how we respond in suffering. In the other place it says, don't be surprised, is when John writes, so again, Peter and John, John writes, don't be surprised that the world hates you. So these are like two things that the Bible wants to be super clear about. He's like, this, just want to set up your expectations. Jesus too, he's like, hey, in this world, you will have trouble. Just want to set up that expectation. If they hated the master, they'll hate the servants. This is, that's what Jesus said. So all this stuff, like it, it, the Bible is like, hey, build this, into your, <clears throat> build this into your expectations. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But we don't necessarily want to internalize that, right? Because it's a little easier to be like about, you know, it's easier for me to be about me and what I want. So, but again, Peter encourages us in his letter. He says, like, when we're suffering for doing good, we can rejoice because we're doing what Jesus did. We're connected with the mission of Jesus. We're actually doing the Jesus stuff. We've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. And we may not receive a beating necessarily, maybe not in our context. Some of us may, but probably most of us not. Often it comes more in like a social rejection kind of thing or somebody being upset whatever. But anytime that we suffer for following Jesus, and especially when we suffer because we've spoken about Jesus, and I'm talking about speaking the gospel, not speaking your political opinions, okay? That doesn't count. If you suffer for speaking your political opinions, that's on you. But if you suffer for speaking about Jesus, sharing the truth of the gospel, you can rejoice 
because your reward is great in heaven and you are connected to the mission of Jesus. You're doing stuff that is actually eternal for his kingdom. So, you know, one of the things for, for all of us here who, who get to the privilege of, of speaking and getting through God's word with you guys and stuff, what it, usually what our preparation looks like every week, at least I'll just speak for myself, but we kind of all commiserate about this. Is it's like we open the word and we read the passage that we're going to be in and then we stand really close to a wall and we just go, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> That's what it feels like all week. Because it's like every time that you come to God's word, at least for me, every time I come to God's word and I know I need to share something, it's like, first of all, it's like, God, I open it up and I'm like, okay, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. <laughs> and I also like, I want him to do it here first. And that's not just this like quick process, like, okay, here's some fun thoughts. And this is, this is what I was mostly struggling with this week, is we see this expression and these expectations of following Jesus that it's going to come out in sacrificial love. It's going to come out in generosity. It's going to come out in holy living. It's like these things that we see. And so I'm sitting there thinking about like, okay, God, how am I going to convince people to do this? And I'm like, how am I going to convince myself to do this? Because when it comes to like generosity, it's like, okay, well, you know, we could talk about like how we're in the wealthiest country in the world, basically. And many of us like statistically are super well off. Even, even if we feel poor, like we're statistically, you know, like 60 or 70% of the world lives on $10 a day or less. And so compared to that, I'm doing really good. So I should be more generous. But that doesn't work, does it? Like, it's fine to think about that. I think it's kind of, kind of convicting. It puts things in a good perspective. But at the same time, it doesn't make me want to be more generous. <laughs> because ultimately, I want to do my thing with my money. It's like, yeah, God, maybe I'll, I'll tie the percentage. Like, for sure. Absolutely. You can have that. Just don't touch the other percent. Because I've got financial goals and a plan. And I've got a certain thing I want to do and experience in my life. So don't, please don't. <laughs> and, you know, so and we could look at any area of our lives, right? And that's the case. It's like we talk about sharing the gospel and we're all like, oh, I threw up in my mouth a little bit. Because we get so anxious and freaked out. And again, I'm not talking about being Billy Graham or anything like that. Because we all have a, a different, unique gifting. For some of us, it's going to happen in, like it says, they, they went around preaching in public, but also in house to house. <laughs> so for some of us, it's going to happen just like one-to-one -one with people, like somebody sitting by you, close to you at your work or whatever. Like it doesn't have to be this huge in front of people type of thing. That's just, that, that's the gifting for some people, not for everybody. But we're all called to share the gospel. And for me, it's like, you know, what, so what do we do today to make us do that? Do we share like, here's like, you know, five ways to share the gospel with your friends. Like that can be helpful, absolutely. But ultimately, it's just more information. You know what actually moves us? <laughs> love. Genuine love. Because here's the thing, when I'm thinking about like just random people out there, the reality is, is I don't really love them more than I love myself. It helps a little bit when I think about my kids though. Because when I think about my kids, if we're talking generosity, I'm not thinking about percentages anymore. I'm thinking about whatever you need. 
I will sell literally all my clothes except one pair because I wouldn't do that to the world. But I will sell all my clothes just to, for whatever they, like I will not eat any food to, to provide for what they need. So how much I have is not the question. How much love that I have, that's the question, right? It's the same thing when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's like, I'm going to talk to my kids about Jesus all day long. And, you know, at an age-appropriate level, right? And they eat and ask good questions. She asks really hard questions about the Trinity and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know. You're going to have to ask a pastor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But I'm sort of serious. You can go ask, you can go, you can ask Chad. Um, And uh, see, because I have no problem with that because I've got, I've got care and love for them. And it's I'm like, no, I, this is the, like probably many of us parents, it's like, what is the one thing you want your kids to know? If you, if, or like, if, if it was your funeral, what's the one thing you'd want your kids to say about you? It's like, man, dad loved Jesus more than anything. And I, I love him too, because in part, because I saw that it was real for him. So with my kids, it just makes so much sense. But man, I have a love deficiency when it comes to most everybody else. Well, and my wife too. I should probably say that. And my wife. I also really love my wife. But most other people, (laughs) see, that's the thing, right? And so how do we do that? It's not more information. It's not more sermons. It's we actually have to depend on the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're just going to end with uh, just a moment of simple reflective prayer. And we're just going to ask the Lord to just do some stuff in our life. And we're going to trust that he's going to do it. So as the band comes up, I just, they'll, they'll just provide kind of a nice background. So it's not so silently awkward. It's just helpful for us, right? And so um, just invite everybody just to close your eyes. And we're just going to ask the Lord to just bring thoughts to our mind. And the first one um, we're going to ask is just asking the Lord, Jesus, is there a place in my life where my expectations have been off? Where what it looks like to follow you has been skewed in some way in my mind? So just allow him to bring something to mind. If nothing comes to mind, that's okay. We just want to give space for the Lord to do that and just to listen. So Lord, if there's any places where our expectations have been skewed, would you bring that to mind? And Jesus, as you bring these things to mind, we just want to confess those things and repent them back to you and just say, Jesus, we recognize that that we've been selfish and self-absorbed and been more concerned with building our own lives and our own kingdoms than yours. And we've been more concerned with temporary things than with eternal things. And we just ask that you would change those things in our hearts and we repent of those and thank you for your forgiveness. The next question I'd invite you to ask the Lord is, Jesus, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Maybe he brought to mind something that's been, you know, just a misunderstanding of expectations or just the way you've been seeing what it looks like to follow him wrongly. And 
you notice a deficiency in your life in some way, say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? What's, what's one way that I can take a step of faith today or take a step of faith this week? allowing to bring that to mind. Maybe there's a specific person or relationship or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a location or God just wants you to be a little more bold and just speaking about Jesus and being a witness of what he's done in your life and just, just sharing that with people. Maybe it's just he's calling you to be more generous find specific vulnerable people around you and and care for them or highlighting people you already know that maybe you've overlooked lastly we just want to ask Jesus and I invite you to personally ask him that he would empower you and give you boldness to obey If you put something on your heart to do, some way to respond, just ask him, Lord, would you give me power and boldness to obey? Because Jesus, we're dependent on you. We don't have it in ourselves to do this. We need your help. I pray that you continue to speak to us as we respond in worship. Let's stand and sing one more song as we close our service today.